Hey, it's Craig from Revolution Radio. This is just a reminder. Can you hit that subscribe button? That way you never miss a new episode of Canadian AF. Thanks so much for listening to Revolution Radio and enjoy this podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Canadian AF, Canadian as fuck right here on Revolution Radio Canada. This is episode 80. I am Craig G. Thank you so much for joining us. We've got our man Dimitri Alexiou. As always, Dimitri, love you. Uh, Filling in for our man Derek Lewis, uh, who is unfortunately under the weather. And uh, our man Derek is actually going to be taking a little bit of time off. So filling in is an absolute true gentleman, the one and only at the Army Chris. Thanks for joining us tonight, buddy. Greatly appreciate it. And of course, we've got Mad Dog Myers, Chris Myers. There's a couple of different names that we call this fellow by. But uh, he is a, a Canadian radio staple, uh, has been doing it uh, out in Edmonton for a very, very, very long time. So, Chris, thanks for joining us tonight, buddy. We greatly thanks appreciate yeah. you. Honestly, man, it's uh, we've wanted to have you on the show for a long time. So it's awesome that we have got you here. Tonight, we welcome. Everyone's going to have to put your hands together. Uh, we are welcoming our friend Mark Gain. He happens to play and is one of the founders of a little band that you may have heard of in Canada called Martha and the Muffins. Mark, thank you so much for joining us tonight. We greatly appreciate it, my friend. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Bye. Awesome. Thanks. Uh, Again, we just really greatly appreciate your time. So, um, Dimitri, my man, take it away. Canadian as fuck would like to begin by acknowledging the indigenous peoples of all the lands that we're on today. While we meet tonight on a virtual platform, we would like to take a moment to acknowledge the importance of the lands we call home. We do this to reaffirm our commitment and responsibility to improving relationships between nations, to improving our own understanding of local Indigenous peoples and cultures, and to try to move forward in a spirit of reconciliation and collaboration. Thank you, Dimitri. Greatly appreciated, as always, my friend. Um, Our man, Eric Alper coming through again and helping us out with an incredible guest tonight mark from martha and the muffins dimitri take it away i have so many questions for mark. um <laughs> so i think i would like to begin because is did martha and the muffins form in the ontario college of art or in thornhill uh, in both in both i don't know well, that's a that's a interesting question, and um, nobody's quite po- uh, posed it that way before. But um, in fact, the answer is yes to both things because um, <laughs> there's a guy uh, who's a professor of sociology at Vassar College in upstate New York. He's been writing a book about the band for the last five years. He knows more about us than we do, and he's actually done a whole series of blogs about that very thing. And his theory uh, or his position is that so many kids that were going uh, living up in Thornhill migrated down to downtown Toronto, some of whom went to the Ontario College of Art and some didn't, but nevertheless, the the college was the center of a lot of bands that had in some, uh, in some respects had already formed in Thornhill. They came down uh, there was probably a new band every week. Um, some um, members of those bands ended up being in Martha and the Muffins, like Martha Johnson, who uh, was in another band called Oh Those Pants, which was made up of Thornhill people. So, yeah, there was a big uh, uh, cross-fertilization between people who were already downtown and people coming from the suburbs. Yeah, because, like... Uh well, um, I grew up in Thornhill. Uh, I w- so I was I lived in Thornhill for the first twenty three years of my life, at, like uh, on Romfield Circuit, which is on off of Bayview Avenue. South I, know, Highway 7. I know, I know where that is. Yes, of course you do. So, <laughs> so um, did you guys? Now, did you guys? I guess because of the Ontario College of Art, that Martha and the Muffins when they were trying to start out in Canada, that they were, that they concentrated on Queen street, but did you ever try to get 
gigs up in up in Thornhill? Um, I know some of those Thornhill bands actually did. I, I know. Uh, oh, I can't remember which band it was that played. Maybe the the Thornhill Country Club or whatever it was called. Ooh, ooh, okay. uh, some weird, <laughs> like some totally weird gig up there, but um, no, we didn't. Uh, not that I can recall ever play in Thornhill as such. You know, we were really concentrated down along what was going to become Queen Street West a few mm-hmm. years later. But uh, uh, yeah, there. Was, I do have a memory of some one of those bands and i know uh, martha in her archives has a picture of them uh at this uh, you would know better dimitri i think is it the gulf the thornhill gulf and country club the one that's well, like just between uh, off young it's yes. just yeah right at young right at the top just before you go down the hill to down to center street yeah yeah, yeah it might yeah. have been there possibly um and it's interesting because martha's family just just lived off uh royal orchard Ro- uh, oh my god <laughs> royal orchard boulevard of course yeah, yeah boulevard so did, did they uh, live near the heinzman house in, in yes Florida? in fact yeah. when she, when their family first moved in you could still see the the barn that i think belonged to the heinzman property behind their house wow and that was like 66 or something like that but uh martha's brother used to drive kids uh his daughter's friends up to the driveway of heinzman house and go here we are pretending it was their house and they'd they'd be going oh wow this is yes (laughs) impressive place yeah you guys should have done gigs there um, yeah, it would have been cool, I think. Yeah. Um, did now was it natural for you? Was was new wave something that you guys had in mind from the start, or what? Or did you start out more in a free jazz type of direction and just sort of evolved into new wave? You're dropping a bit on me, Dimitri. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. So, can you hear me? Uh, yeah, you were dropping Hello. out a bit before then. So okay, so so was New Wave uh, was New Wave your Martha and the Muffins plan from the start, or was or did you guys? I, or I think I read that you guys started out more in a free jazz direction and evolved into New Wave. Well, I don't even. I think it just started being called New Wave. You know, it was it was sort of what was or what later would be called post punk. Um, but I think we considered ourselves new wave as a way of uh, differentiating ourselves from the, the punks because we weren't really punk, although we had some aspects of that, like the whole DIY thing. I mean, uh, the, the original six members of the band had uh, varying degrees of musical training. Um, I self-taught, and so my big goal was to get from one end of the song to the other without making a mistake. Um, but there, you know, Carl Finkel, the original bassist was, you know, was quite good on the bass and keyboards. And, um, but yeah, I, I seem to remember that, you know, we were, we kind of positioned ourselves as new wave as opposed to, uh, but then, you know, um, the original sax player, Andy Hawes came out of a jazz and avant-garde and experimental yeah. Music background, as did I. Actually, I was doing experimental music before I was doing pop music. Even though I love both, like I love mm-hmm. noise and I like really good pop music. You know, it's a very weird, often clashing kind of thing for me in my head. But you know, I like it all basically. But yeah, it was new wave. I guess that would be the best way of describing it. Uh, certainly with the original band. Now. You guys signed with, were you guys the first Canadian signing to Virgin Records? Uh, I think so, yeah. Um, yeah. If there, was, if there was somebody else, I don't think we've heard of them. Um, I know Nash the Slash got signed uh, a few years after us. But, I mean, we were basically plucked out of this tiny embryonic scene on Queen Street. And, all the, you know, we, we basically yeah. went from playing you know, the Horseshoe and the Beverly and the Edge, which were all sort of small venues in Toronto to 
you know, playing fairly major venues in London and having junkets where, you know, there'd be a whole restaurant you'd walk in and all of London's press was there. Mm-hmm. And so it was quite the leap. You know, it, it was really, we were in some ways unprepared for that. Yeah. But I, then, I was, well, sorry, 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 Craig. My apologies, Dimitri. I just wanted to ask really quickly, if you wouldn't mind touching actually on that, um, we had the very good fortune of talking with our new bestie, Chris Tate from Chalk Circle. Uh, a few weeks ago and he was talking about the wonderful scene that queen street had but he was saying that he was kind of um in a uh, a part of the queen street scene that was just a little bit after people like uh bands like you guys and bands like the spoons um i was wondering if you might be able to talk a little bit about the queen street scene because it's i, I actually have a clip that i'm going to play here in a second of you um which i just find absolutely amazing it's a really really cool clip but yeah just wondering if you could touch on the queen street sure. scene for a, for a bit um well the scene the, the scene originally was very very small when we started and you would not recognize Queen Street West at all because it was the home of, you know, people sleeping in the doorways. Uh, the bamboo was actually, or the bamboo club, which has since closed, but the bamboo was actually a bamboo store. Uh, the only thing there that I could still there, Peter Pan, apart from was the front. The waiters and waitresses tended to be in local bands. The, the basically the center of it was the Beverly Tavern, the Music Gallery, which was a block or two over the Ontario College of Art and the Experimental Arts uh, faculty of that in the old Brinks Safe Building that was just south of the main uh, OCA building, and it was very very small. Like uh, the Beverly was kind of like the living room for all the students to hang out and the teachers. And these bands and the owners uh, or the guys that did the booking, you know, he would just book anybody. So it gave bands like us an opportunity to, like, actually, you know, get a bit better, you know, as opposed to, to practicing in our, our rehearsal space all the time. We actually got to play somewhere, but in front of a very um, familiar audience, like everybody in the audience we knew. And we actually have early tapes from the Beverly where people are screaming out stuff at us and, you know, we know who they all are and, and everybody's yeah. having a good time. Um, so it was very small and it was only, I remember actually when it started to get popular when boutiques, maybe this is quite a bit later, but when boutiques opened being run by people from the suburbs who were selling like deliberately ripped tops with, you know, uh, yeah, pins in them and safety pins and you know by then it was all over like it was already late but um from that you know i think i I was talking to johnny and the g uh john mcleod of johnny and the g rays who was a had a great band and uh they still play from time to time and he said you know mark our bands really started the whole queen street thing it was the, the the whole artists band scene that made other people want to come there yeah, and yeah. you know, he said we should really have a plaque down there, you know, listing all the early bands. And even though a lot of them were long gone, it was that that scene when everybody, you know, started coming from the suburbs, going and wanting to be part of it, you know, or see what was going on. Yeah, um, and I remember when we we opened for the B fifty twos on the De- and uh, at the Danforth Music Hall, and I think that was the first. Oh One of the first shows where I saw people from the suburbs, and I thought, "Oh, this scene's getting bigger." Like suddenly, oh, it wasn't yeah, your, for sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Suddenly, it wasn't like just your friends and you know pe- friends of friends. All of a sudden, there were people you didn't know uh, okay. that were clearly not part of the downtown scene. So that was an interesting change. Did awesome. you? Was there any? Was there any weird coexistence between the punks and? the new wave people like vile tones and Martha and the muffins. Did they get along? Um, yeah, I don't know. Like, uh, I mean, I guess the band that would be considered punk. Did you guys rumble? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, It was like West side story, you know? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Nice. Yeah. It didn't come to that. Um, but we were 
pretty close with the diodes because I think maybe all of them were going to the Ontario College of Art and they rehearsed in the um, in the uh, experimental arts uh, building as well. And um, but no, we didn't. Uh, our band really didn't have a lot to do with the punk scene. Um, they weren't necessarily separate, but in terms of our band, anyway, you know, we we kind of hung out with bands more like the G Rays and uh, the Dishes. Stephen Davy, who started, was one of the founding members of the Dishes, uh, and is sadly not with us anymore. But he was a huge influence on that whole scene. I mean, one of the reasons I, when I was asked to start a band by my fellow uh, art student David Miller, it was because of the Dishes, you know. And and I just thought, yeah, they're pretty cool. We could do something like that. Um, but so yeah, for us it was more like the art arty bands, you know. Yeah. As opposed to, and I know the late, know the late, I, I was just I, I was just going to see. Whoops, my, Whoops. my, turn out the reverb. Yeah, yeah, suddenly. So, so something, something happened, happened here. here. Is it maybe that? Let's, yeah, let's I think go. it was that. I think it was that. But, um, okay. yeah, we're Mark, back. you sound okay. Yeah, okay. So, if, if I may, Dimitri, I'm going to stop you there. Sorry. This actually ties perfectly into what Mark has literally just been talking about because. This is a, uh, a on a fellow by the name of Kareem Mosna on uh, their YouTube page. I don't know that this is the person that actually did this documentary, but it's a wonderful, wonderful documentary featuring the likes of people like Danny Elwell, somebody named ooh, David Marsden, uh, <laughs> Alan Cross, who just happened to be my program director uh, at the time. I just want to play a little clip here because this is actually a great uh, interview with Mark from Martha in the Muffins uh, for this awesome um, little pokey radio station called CFNY in downtown Toronto. And everyone just kind of shares their awesome stories about how everyone managed to get their start through this radio station. So hopefully you guys can hear this audio. Let me know. Give me thumbs up if you can hear the audio here, okay? And make sure that the sound is up. And here we go do all the heavy lifting, um, making the song familiar to the audience. And then when the song reached a certain level of popularity, well, then other stations would jump on it. And the station became known for breaking new bands. So when, for example, Martha the Muffins, Echo Beach came on, uh, you know, that was 1979, it was the Metro Music album, uh, CFNY played it, became a hit, then it gravitated to other radio stations. And uh, some people would say, oh, I've heard that, that CFMY played it. And we'd also get credit from record labels and from managers and from the bands themselves saying, you know what, nobody would play this band, play our songs before you did, so uh, you know, we're loyal to you and, and anything that comes along, we will give it to you first. From nine to five, I have to spend my time at work. My job is very boring, I'm an office clerk. The only thing that helps me pass the time away is knowing I'll be back at Echo Beach someday. In 19, I think, 79, we put out a little self-produced single with two songs called uh, Insect Love and Suburban Dream. And they were, that station was incredibly supportive. And they said, we're going to play this. And we're going to play it at, you know, Sunday night at 7 p.m. And so we all got near the radio to hear that. And they did play it. And, you know, it was absolutely thrilling because uh, we had no idea that any station was going to play any of our music. The instruction was we listen to everything. They would the bring it in. We would listen to it in my office. I'd put the turntable and we'd listen. And we'd skip through the tracks because we never eliminated any tracks from an album. An album had to be good all the way through or it didn't go in. Uh, and then we would vote on it. The three of us would vote yay or nay. And if it got a yay, then it went in. If it got a nay, then it went to listen to it one more time next week. Everything was given three chances before it was before it was excluded. Yes, it was the music, but you know it's the personalities too. You know, and and, and the this is Ivor personalities Hamilton. from you know the time frame, whether that be uh, you know uh, uh, the Pete and Geats who, or the Morning Show or Brad McNally or the All Night Andre to to. Uh, 
uh, a James Scott, a Ron Bouchelle, a Live Earl Jive, all those people. You know, people remember those. They still remember those those jocks. I mean, you know, ask um, most people about you know who do you remember on you know a Q107 or a Chum FM back in those days. Most of the time, what you'll get is most people will remember you know a Roger Rick in Maryland, or they'll remember um, you know a brother Jake on a Q107. But you ask people about CFNY, they'll most people remember just about everybody who was there all the time. So everybody kind of had, um, you know, their memories of each, you know, segment of, of what we did, did programming wise. Whenever I did an interview yeah. with any, um, a, a, with a person who was a prospect, Mark comes back here in a line, I never asked them questions like, could they do it? I never asked them questions like, what's your past experience? I never asked questions like, what university or college did you attend? I did ask questions that would lead me to find out whether or not they had the passion to do what has to be done, to do what we did at CFNY. That's all that ever, ever mattered to me. The, the other stuff to me is just bullshit. All that matters is, do I see passion in an individual's eyes? Do I think that they are going to just be prepared to work, 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 and do, do, do for only one reason, love. When you started going into radio stations or you started getting involved with record companies, you went, wow, a lot of these people, it's just a job for them. They might as well be selling Kleenex or, you know, toilet paper or something. Like, they just go, yeah, it's a job, you know, and we got this format coming out and blah, and you go, wow. and and. That even makes you know a, a, a station like CFNY even more special because they were like an island of radio where you went, when I listen to this guy, I know he really likes what he's playing. Being commercial. That was just an absolutely incredible interview that you did, Mark. Um, even well, me I working there in the early 2000s, I felt... I had so much pride working there because I knew I wasn't a part of the spirit of radio era of CFNY and that's okay. But I just, I felt so much pride being a part of that station and you guys, every time I would play, like I would throw down black stations, white stations and anything like that on a Sunday night. Cause I used to, I used to DJ the retro show. People would go crazy for your music and fuck Mark. You haven't aged a day. <laughs> I, I have a special filter here going <laughs> nice <laughs> hey sorry the, oh, dimitri uh, dimitri oh. you're muted sorry my friend that's why i was wondering dimitri's always on it <laughs> okay so for, before we before we uh we start talking about your um your awesome cover for what it's worth um I just have to, I just have a few questions about your time with Virgin Records. Um, because we, uh, a couple months ago, Craig and I interviewed Metric, uh, somebody, a band that Martha has compared to Mar Martha and the Muffins uh, mm -hmm. in, a, in, an, in an interview that I read. Um, so, and, uh, and Metric were saying, one of the things that Emily said was that if Metric had been on a major label, it would have killed them and you and uh and i'm wondering even though you had enormous success with echo beach off the right off the hop right with virgin the neck they i've read that they that you felt that you guys felt pressured to do the second album before you were ready and then and then when you started working with Dan, daniel lanwan this is the ice age because he was unknown they were not enthusiastic and they cut your budget and so, <laughs> yeah, so. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's all true. Um, you know, everybody, when I was in high school and, you know, I think uh, the Mike Oldfield, the second album came out, Her Just Ridge, and I used to look at the album cover and it was shot at the Manor Studios and I think he recorded there and I thought, wow, would that ever be cool going there? Would it ever be cool, you know, recording? And I had no aspirations for being in a band and then, you know, we were signed a Virgin. We drove up to the manor where we did our first two albums. I thought, I can't believe this. And the <laughs> same three Irish wolfhounds that sort of one of which appears on the, that cover 
of Mike Oldfield. So I was running around the field. So I thought, this is too much. I, but, you know, it, it was true. Like uh, uh, with the second album, a lot of it was mainly songs that we'd already written. Um, we were rushed into it. I mean, the second album came out the same year as the first. And we were under wow. enormous pressure. I remember Carol Wilson, who was head of the Din Disc division of Virgin, going, you know, this is all good stuff on the second album, but we don't hear another Echo Beach. And I, maybe in not so many words, I said, well, there's probably not going to be another one because I'm moving on to, I'm trying new things. And, you know, we were very, very naive. You know, I mean, there was no such thing as rock school or, you know, online blogs about the music biz. I mean, we were just babes in the woods and um, we didn't have a manager. So uh, we were, hmm. you know, wow. there was no, there was no um, filtering you didn't the band. You didn't have a manager for your first two records? No. no. Wow. Um, wow. Okay. How did that, how did that, Mark, Mark how, how did that work out? Acted like man. Well, it didn't work out very well at all because we had really, you know, big confrontations with uh, yeah. Carol Wilson. And, okay. um, uh, you know, I remember like we'd have, there was fights about whether we, what photo we should put on the inside of Metro Music and the British pressing. They woke us up, I think, at 6 a.m. and took us to some back alley in London with a bunch of garbage cans and took a picture of us. And we all looked like we just woke up. And the Canadian version, we said, we're just dumping Jeez. that because it has no, you know, connection with the, the kind of classy map of Toronto. So a friend of mine yeah. from high school took another shot, which I thought was where we're all just lined up. But uh, it was a lot better. But we had those kind of fights. And, you know, when we were recording, Richard Branson would come up and, you know, it, it was very interesting with Richard because... Um, he always had to be the center of attention, you know, and he would always no. be pulling like practical jokes, but they weren't really practical jokes. It was more like I'm the alpha dog. And, you know, so he threw Martha Ladley, the second Martha at the time into a garbage can. And another oh, time boy. we were having dinner and he was supposed to show up and he was late and he went, you know, he's standing over Carol Wilson with a glass. He said, can I have a glass of water? You know, and he goes, oh, my God, I'm late, and deliberately poured it on her lap. And he was always doing things that were kind of, like, supposed to be funny, but they weren't really, you know? Like, wow. And so we had a real, real wake-up call about what the industry was kind of about, you know? And it wasn't about yeah. creativity particularly. It wasn't about artists getting to do what they wanted to do. It was more like... When are you going to do another Echo Beach? You know, yeah. and yeah. the great thing about uh, working, yeah, I mean, and the great thing about working with Dan Lenoir was that, uh, yeah, they didn't know who he was. He wasn't famous at that point, and you know, they weren't really that interested in us anymore. But they did, you know, want to do a third album. They said, "Well, if you're going to use this unknown guy, we're going to cut." And I can't remember now whether it was 10,000 bucks or 10,000 pounds, which is significant. But yes. nevertheless, we just went fine. And, you know, throughout the recording of that, which was done at Grand Avenue in, uh, in Hamilton, for the most part, no record company person ever appeared. We just did what we wanted. Which is a fantastic, fantastic album, you know. It it's a fan and it's still a fantastic album. This is the Ice Age. Yeah, that is still record. a fantastic album. Yeah. Um, so you guys, well, I think current, it goes to, right. Uh, yeah. Like I, then we got, we, we got Jerry Young as a manager who was working for, uh, who was he working for? Oh, one of the big labels is an A, sort of an A&R guy. And we, and he, um, became friendly with us because, uh, oh God, help me here, guys. Who was distributing was that Virgin in Canada then? Uh, oh god, I have a like brain EMI, right? Here. Wasn't it wasn't it capital EMI? Uh not then. No, no, it wasn't. It well wasn't. anyway, so whatever the label was, whatever the label was, he was part of it and we kind of got friendly with him and we were really desperate for a for a manager and he seemed to be a guy who would help protect us, 
which he did like a ferocious pit bull. Um, and so at that point, we had Jerry. We had met Dan through uh, his sister, Jocelyn, who joined the band as the bass player and happened to say, oh, I've got two brothers in Hamilton with a studio. And, you know, do you want to go and cut a demo there for the next album? We said, well, you know, sure, we'll try it out. And we got on so well that, you know, we ended up doing three albums with him. And he was kind of like uh, George Martin was to the Beatles for us, you know, like yeah. there was no idea too weird or, you know, Mark the art college experimental musician <laughs> to throw at him. And he just, he'd be fine with it, you know, totally cool with it. Was, was Mystery Walk the last record that you did with, with, with uh, Lanois? Uh, no, we did age. Dance Park, or did This da- is the Ice Age. Oh, yeah, no, dance you're right, park. yeah. It was, this dance is the Ice Age, Mystery Walk, yeah. Dance Park, and Mystery Walk. Okay. Yeah. 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 Oh. Triptych. Yeah. So, but, but, but Current is, but you and Martha formed Current, right? Current, the Current label? Uh, no, it's more like Jerry, our manager, our lawyer at the time, Joe Fodor, and another guy they knew, uh, they did it. But I, I think at the time we were going, you know, we don't want to be with a label like Virgin. And um, I think they just answered the call, you know. So we were the first band. They, they basically formed it for us. But we're obviously interested in getting other bands. And, of course, the club were part of that later on um so you know that they there was a great little indie label for a while and they really did um stick up for us i I mean when i look back on the kinds of albums we did yeah we had our commercial side but we got away with a lot of weird shit you know yeah yeah yeah. i mean i don't even know how the late you know because it was distributed Current was distributed by RCA, later BMG. But um, I don't know how we got away with a lot of stuff, you know? I'm just, I'm just um, wondering how you managed to get away with The World is a Ball, having background singers in Tony Levin and Jerry Marotta. <laughs> Literally to one, of the, like, one of the finest drummers and one of the finest bass players ever in history being background singers for you guys that's incredible like i just i just i just find that amazing i i would have figured you would have looked at them and and you know saw the personnel listing and it would say tony levin on bass and jerry Murata on drums but they're background vocalists so well I yeah jerry kinda... um tony did play bass and and actually played stick on two of the songs on that album but jerry likes to sing so that's what he wanted to do. And we'd already cut all the rhythm tracks with Yogi Horton and a lot of the bass with Tinker Barfield, who were this phenomenal uh, funk R&B rhythm section from New York that played with Diana Ross and Luther Vandross. And, I mean, they were just, you know, they were like so far above us in, in musicianship. It was just kind of jaw-dropping to see them play. But, of course, Jerry and... Tony Levin, uh, you know, are, are of, that, of that level too. And being a huge King Crimson fan, mm. I mean, it was just great meeting Tony Levin and having him actually play, you know, on the album. And all that came through David Lord, who was the producer yes. that I worked with on The World is a Ball. So he'd worked with Peter Gabriel. And when we were recording in Bath at um, uh, his studio, um, Gabriel Studios, just about eight miles down the ro- uh, the road, uh, just outside of Bath. So he said, "Well, you know, they're working on uh, Gabriel's new album. They're all there. So why don't we call them in?" You know, and I said, "Yeah, let's do that." <laughs> oh my God! He was recording <laughs> so at the time. Yeah. He was recording so. <laughs> oh my God! <laughs> So Martha um, and, and the Muffins are hanging out with Peter. Get- well, I think was that uh, Real World Studios. Yeah, that- but it was Real World. It was, yeah, it was Real World when it was still in his barn. Oh my god! Salisbury Hill, but but um, <laughs> we did, and you know when Dan was recording that, we did meet him. I think at least once while we were recording, we we met at a restaurant in Bath, and uh, it was the middle of the summer, and he walked in with a big sort of Michelin man. 
coat on and he goes, it's always so cold here. (laughs) 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 Oh my goodness. Wow. What a great story. That's amazing. We have got to start talking about your brand new cover of for what it's worth. Um, And uh, it's, and it seems like it, like this cover originated from a very intense fraught place for both you and Martha. Um, and, uh, so you have, you, you approach the song from a, an area, a very dark and dramatic area. And it's because of the impact on, of gun violence on indirectly and, and somewhat directly to both you and Martha. So I was, I guess I kind of asking you to talk about, begin by talking about that. Okay, well, I know what you're you're talking about, and in fact, um, that sort of happened later. Actually, the song was recorded uh, for a cover album put out by our manager, Graham Stairs label, Pop Girl, Pop Guru, um, and the the album was called Coverama. And basically, everybody on this label picked a cover song that they'd like to do, and um, the first one, we, we, we were the only band that had two covers on that album. The first cover was uh, the English Beats song, Save It For Later. Fantastic. Um, and I, I don't know how long you want to hear this. This is a bit of a roundabout story, but I will get to what you're getting at. But anyway. We're, we're, we're here all night, so go right ahead. <laughs> <laughs> right. We got a couple of hours here. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what happened is that uh, Graham Sim, the producers of the UK series um, Sex Education, want to do a new version of Save It For Later for their third season trailer, and you've got a weekend to do it. And I said, eh, I don't think so, but Martha, yeah, let's do it. Okay, so we actually recorded it uh, in our little home studio here. And uh, it actually turned out really well. Like, we were really happy with how it turned out. So, however, um, the, the producers of Seducation ended up any version of anybody, uh, anybody's pitching to it. So we were left with this song that was... Uh, so that we suggested to our manager, Graham, why not do an album of covers? And um, so, but we didn't, because that song was for different reasons, you know, it started as a pitch. We wanted to put something on the album that reflected more about where we were at mentally, you know, with the state of the world and everything. So Martha tr- said, why don't we do Fire with, uh, by Jimi Hendrix? And full respect, had, Mark. Uh, really- full respect, because covers take balls to do. Like, you're really well, putting it out I, there. I think you, you have to... I think that the key, you know, is to do as an original take as as you can. So, yeah, you know, we tried out sure, Fire by that's, Hendrix, that's and she had, like a, she had an early like cassette of it, you know, just singing. Right. And I thought this is great, but it didn't work out for various reasons. So, um, we s- decided to do for what it's worth because you know the whole gun violence thing has kind of gotten out of control in Toronto and a lot of places and what we used to take for granted uh, is no longer the case in a lot of things. And so we did that version and it uh, came out on that album. And I kept thinking, we got to do a video for this. So somewhere between the making of the video or of the recording of the song, making the video, we woke up one morning to hear on the radio that, there'd been a mass shooting in Vaughan, Ontario, which is just north of uh, Toronto, north of Thornhill, actually. And they were saying uh, Russ Manick and his wife were fatally shot in their condo by some crazed occupant of the apartment building. And we were going, well, I, it couldn't I remember be. hearing about that. Yeah, I remember hearing about that. Yeah, and we, and we were going, you know, there's that sense of uh, disbelief and you're trying to go, well, it can't be you know, the Russ Manic we know. So as it turned out, he was our, our accountant for 40 years and he had just oh. retired. 
and there was some guy, uh, he was a member of the condo board, and this crazy guy was all paranoid about what the condo board was doing, and he ended up shooting three members. Uh, he was killed by the police himself, and Russ and his wife, Lorraine, were two of those people, and, you know, that, we just couldn't believe it. I mean, we've never had that hit as close to home, and, uh, you know, we'll never get over it. I mean, you get, you come to, you try and come to terms with it, but I know Martha and I still think about it, and, uh, you know, we can't, uh, I don't think you can process it, really. You know, I don't know how you process something like that. And then, yeah. Oddly enough, when we chose uh, Jason Ciperone to do the directing and filming of the video, he said, yeah, I, that's terrible. And he said, it's come close to home to me as well, because he was in his apartment and he heard a gunshot and he opened the door and there's a guy, you know, shot in the leg right in front of his door, bleeding all over the floor. And when we shot the scene in the video where there's a long apartment hallway in Jason's building, there's still like bullet ricochet chunks out of the floor near, near the elevator. So, you yeah. know, there was that weird added dimension uh, that we could have mm-hmm. never, uh, you know, anticipated at all. Um, yeah. and, I no- and I noticed that you also chose to film the video along the, di- l- much of the video along the Danforth. And, yeah. We, uh, and there was, and a- we all, and we, yes. And we all know the, the shooting that happened on July 2nd, 2018. Yes. Um, and along there, along that stretch. And so that took balls. That was a ballsy choice too. Well, you know, we just, I think, um, you know, the interesting thing about for what it's worth is that it, um, it's a container that depending on what you're feeling at the time, the, the lyrics seem to suit, all the, I think there's been a hundred and some odd, you know, covers of it. And everybody's interpreted it, you know, with their own sensibilities. Like um, uh, the Staples singers did a version. Of course, that was through their experience as black people. And it has a whole other feeling when they sing it, you know. And and we just wanted to, it's always been a song. I, I mean, we were probably about 10, 11, 12 when that song came out. And, you know, the whole uh, stop children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down. Like that sounds like today, sadly. Like, I mean, yeah. you know, I, I thought when I heard that song when I was a kid, I thought, yeah, but the world's going to be better when we're adults. And I'm not sure that we can say that, you know. And so the song has a longevity. Not, not my experience, no. <laughs> Yeah, um, you know, so uh, we used it for the, the, you know, the feelings we were having about the gun violence. And the idea of the video was that um, we would shoot it with these two people walking through ordinary Toronto environments, except they have revolvers for heads and nobody's paying attention to them. You know, and that was sort of our statement, like, maybe it's become so commonplace, people just, uh, you know, it's in the news every day. And um, we were pretty paranoid about making it. We thought we might be attacked on the street by people. And in fact, the very opposite happened when people knew what we were doing. You know, they they were really, really supportive, Um, Mm -hmm. which was interesting. I, I found that very hopeful, actually. Mm-hmm. Well, oh, absolutely! It's an awesome. It's a yeah. We're gonna we're gonna throw to the video, and um, I guess uh, thank you so much, uh, Mark Gain of Martha and the Muffins, for hanging out with us and answering all of our questions, and uh, and our love and respect to Martha. You know, so um, so please give give her our best. Well, she sends her best to all of you. I don't know if you know she's got Parkinson's disease. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And sometimes she, you know, when we were arranging all these interviews with Eric Alper, I said, you know, she has her up and downs with the drug regimen. Uh, as you probably know from Michael J. Fox, you know, you you take your drugs and you have a peak and then you have a trough. And so she's finding it 
sometimes quite hard to uh, her speech is gets jittery as well. And uh, so she said, you know, I'm going to pass on this one because I'm not really feeling that great. But she wanted to say hello to everybody and, and, mm-hmm. and thank you for, for having us on the show for sure as oh, well. Just, we absolutely just send our just undying love to, to both of you. You guys are just, we just absolutely adore you and well, thank you it's, so much. It's very, you know, we, we don't take it for granted, you know. Yeah. <clears throat> So, um, so uh, right now keeps us going. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. So right now we're going to play for everyone uh, this awesome new video of a uh, Martha and the Muffins cover of "For What It's Worth" by Buffalo Springfield. Um, and uh, have a great night, uh, Mar- Mark and Martha. And uh, this is uh, "For What It's Worth" by Martha and the Muffins on Canadian as fuck on revolution radio. Thanks again so much, Mark. We greatly Thank appreciate you, Mark. your time. Thank you. Appreciate you, brother. Again, I sincerely hope that the audio works. Here we go. Thumbs up. Thanks, Mark. There's something happening here What it is ain't exactly clear There's a man with a gun over there Telling me I've got to beware Think it's time we stop, children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going
Well, well, that was freaking awesome. <laughs> that that was truly amazing. Um, I I discovered Mark and Martha. Uh, I grew up in the eighties uh, in Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan wasn't really known as a hotbed for new wave. There wasn't a lot of it on the radio. So thank God at that time for much music, and uh, you know. M plus M at that time, of course, when 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 the channel debuted, and I became an instant fan, and and, and the videos just had the coolest coolest visuals, and were totally on par with a lot of the big budget stuff coming out of the U.S. So, uh, seeing this music video and just how powerful it is, and again, it's 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 the it's those visuals. You you guys just nailed it. Well, you know, when you're when you're doing that, you kind of, you know, like when you're making anything, like whether it's a song or a video, you kind of go, are we on the right track here? Is this going to be crap or is it going to work? And I think, you know, the reactions that we've had so far have been really good. So we had good feelings about it. But of course, you never know until it goes out into the world. And, uh, you know, I, I think we, Martha and I have been very happy and Jason who shot yeah. such a wonderful job shooting it. Uh, and, you know, our two good friends, Susan and Stewart, who had to put those gun heads on on a hot day in, I think it was June. Um, and they were just <laughs> about it. Oh, June. Okay. Wow, good for them. Awesome. Awesome. Mark, thank you so much. My pleasure, really guys. appreciate uh, it. Uh, I'm going to sign off now. Um, I guess you're going to keep going on for hours and hours, but yeah, not quite hours <laughs> it, and hours. But it never we, uh, really ends. We yeah, that's that is true. Especially when you've got, when you've got our, <laughs> we've got our friend Army Chris with us. But uh, no, we're going to keep playing some great Canadian music. So um, you know, please, if you uh, you know, want to check us out, uh, we are on Twitch. Uh, which is twitch.tv forward slash Revolution Radio Canada. Thank you for allowing me to do this quick sell here, uh, as well as uh, on YouTube, Revolution Radio TV. So uh, we are, uh, we're available those those places. Or you can actually get us uh, on our, it's actually probably the easiest place, is our website, which is revolutionradio.live, as in live music. So uh, again, Mark, thank you so much for everything. We really appreciate your time and all the all right. best to you and Martha. Take care, guys. Have Thanks a good day. You too, Mark. Thanks, man. Easy. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com.